All right. Well, uh, if you'll uh, open with me to Colossians 2. As we uh, move through the book of Colossians, we're in uh, this middle section, the, the body of the letter, where Paul's um, really addressing kind of the issue that he's, that he's writing to the Colossians for, which, as we've talked about, has been that there's these, these uh, cultural pressures or, or false teachings or something that's, that's exerting pressure on the Colossians, and he's writing to them to tell them to continue to, to stay faithful to Christ and to see that he is entirely sufficient for everything that they need. Um, in the last section, he talked about his, his kind of overall ministry and then focused in in the beginning of chapter 2 on his ministry to the Colossians, which uh, is, is his, uh, I think, suggested he's in, he's in prison, and so his struggling is struggling in prayer on the behalf of the Colossians that they will be fully assured, uh, that they will um, see that in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and uh, so that no one will delude them, right? No one will draw them away with anything that sounds wise, that sounds spiritual, but really is empty. Uh, and, and so as we get into this section, verses 6 to 23 is sort of the heart of the letter in terms of this is where Paul is actually going to most explicitly address the things that are going on. So he's, he's hinted at it up until now, but now he's going to, especially the next time we get together in verses 16 to 23, he's going to much more uh, openly say, here are things that you need to be especially careful that you don't get led away by. But before he, he gets there, he's going to, uh, he's going to illustrate for them again why Christ is truly sufficient. And so, uh, if he's talking about his, his mission is to present every person, man or woman, mature in Christ. He's going to say, well, I, you know, he just said, in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Everything that needs to be found is found in him, so you don't need anything else. So he's going to reinforce, Christ is sufficient for Christian maturity. In order to become complete, in order to become spiritually mature, you don't need anything more than Christ. And so verses 6 to 15, which we're doing today, is he's going to describe this full sufficiency of Christ. How is it that Christ is fully sufficient for them? And then the next time we're together, he's going to contrast that with the empty insufficiency of everything else. So verses 6 and 7, verses 6 to 8 sort of are, are the, kind of the opening section of, of this, um, this part, and it's sort of like the thesis statement of the whole book. So this is where, if you're going to boil down everything that Paul is saying in the book, this is sort of uh, the summary statement. He's going to tell them if he's, if he's wanting them to pursue maturity, if he's wanting them to become mature, to become complete in Christ, he's going to, this is the path to maturity that he wants them to walk on, which is to walk in Christ and not be taken captive by anything else. He says, therefore, 
So remember, he's, he's, just, he's just told them that he's rejoicing to see their, their, their good discipline and their, uh, the stability of their faith. So they've, uh, the, they've embraced the gospel and, and they're growing in their faith. And he says, therefore, since this is, this is true about you, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. All right, so... Verse 6, there's, there's a, a positive command. In verse 8, there's sort of a negative command. Walk in him and see to it that no one takes you captive. So those are the two uh, commands. So the instruction that Paul gives them, this is the path to maturity. The path to maturity is, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. The idea of walk, we've already seen that in chapter 1 in the prayer. He says, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Walk uh, is just a, a sort of a, a, a way that uh, Paul uh, says, live your life, uh, conduct yourself. It's describing everything about how from, from the time you come to know Christ, how you live out your life. And so it's called your walk. He's like, just as you received Christ Jesus, I want you to live your life in him. So the question is, how did you receive Christ? One thing is, we usually think about this idea of receiving Christ as this is the personal decision that I make to ask Jesus to come into my heart. And the Bible does use the terminology of receiving Christ in that way, think about John 1, to those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so there's nothing wrong with using it that way. Paul probably doesn't mean it quite that way here. The word that he uses has to do with more with receiving something that's been handed down. So he uses the same word in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 to talk about uh, how he has passed on to the Corinthians what he received himself, the gospel. So really what, what I think Paul's saying here is uh, you, to, for the Colossians to have received Christ Jesus the Lord is, is a way of, uh, the same way as talking about them um, coming to understand and believe the gospel so it's not so much about me personally receiving Christ, although that's implied in it, as much as it is uh, it's uh, receiving and embracing the true message that Jesus, the Messiah, is Lord. Now, whether you take it as this is my personal receiving of Jesus or this is the, the, the Colossians embracing of the gospel, and there's a lot of overlap, so it's not something to get caught up on, the way that they received Christ Jesus the Lord is the same either way. It's by faith. So if Paul wants the Colossians to walk in him as they received him, the Lord, then he's saying that I want you to continue to walk, I want you to continue to live your life as a Christian by faith. And this is, this is important because 
the, the idea of living by faith sometimes can be taken to mean well, we live by faith and not by proof, or we live by faith and not by evidence. And I think there's certainly a, a way in which that's true, and Paul uses that kind of terminology in 2 Corinthians. He says we walk by faith and not by sight. Um, but here, I, I think particularly because of some of the things that he's going to be critical of later in the book, I don't think it's so much walk, um, walk by faith in him just as you received him as opposed to uh, walking by uh, proof or sight or evidence. I think it's, it's more um, walk by faith, not by works. Because that's what he's going to be combating later. Is he's going to say, don't, don't let people tell you that you need to do all of these things in order to be acceptable to God or to reach true spiritual maturity. You received him by faith, so continue to walk in him in the same way, by faith. Paul addresses the same issue uh, quite a bit in the book of Galatians. Right? He, he said uh, in Galatians 2.20, this is the second Bible verse I ever memorized, and now I'm going to see if I can embarrass myself by not remembering it. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the Galatians had been, had been tempted to, uh, to move away from Christ alone and to start adding things to Christ in order to be acceptable to God. Particularly, they were being told that they needed to be circumcised. They need to become Jews in order to be saved. And Paul's writing to them saying, no, that's not the case at all. And if you do that, then you're saying that you require uh, works in order to be saved, and that's not what the gospel says. And then he goes on and at the beginning of Galatians 2, and, he, and, he's, and he's rebuking them. So remember, the Colossians, he's not rebuking. He's, maybe he's warning them, he's admonishing them. But he's not rebuking them. He's, pretty, he's pleased with the way that their, their faith is stable. But the Galatians, he says, he's rebuking them. He calls them, you foolish Galatians, which is fun. And uh, you guys probably wouldn't like it if I got up on a Sunday morning and called you foolish. He says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having been begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected or completed by the flesh? He wants them to, to remember that they don't, they don't simply start the Christian life by faith and then continue it by doing all of these works or religious practices. They start by faith and they continue by faith. That's going to be important because later in the chapter he's going to address these false te teachings that would say, here are all these sincere religious actions that you really need to do in order to be mature. He's going to say all of those things don't actually result in real change. Only faith in Christ results in real change. Um, this idea of living by faith uh, in addition to just receiving the gospel by faith but continuing to live in the gospel by faith is... Um, is summarized well in this uh, quote. I gave you two fun quotes on the back of your, of your questions. Um, uh, per my contractual obligations, both of these guys are dead. Um, 
So this, the, this first one is uh, this guy, William Romaine. He was a pastor in England about the same time as John Wesley and George Whitfield. And he, he wrote a book. Um, he wrote three books on faith. The first one is called The Life of Faith. This is, these are the first lines of, of this book. The design of this little treatise, this little book, is to display the glory and all-sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ and to encourage weak believers to glorify Him more by depending and living more upon His all-sufficiency. Whatever grace He has promised in His Word, He is faithful, and He is almighty to bestow. And they may receive it of Him freely by the hand of faith. This is its use and office as a hand or instrument having first received Christ, to be continually receiving out of Christ's fullness. The apostle calls this living by faith, a life received and continued with all the strength, comforts, and blessings belonging to it by faith in the Son of God. So we start the Christian life by faith and we continue to live it by faith. And that doesn't mean that there's no work or effort involved. If, it's, if you just uh, say, oh, I'm saved by faith, so I can just kick back and, and do nothing, then you're, you're missing other aspects of the gospel that are important, other implications of it. And Paul's going to say in, in chapters 3 and, and 4, like, no, there's, there's actually a number of commands that we are to obey if we truly have been raised with Christ. But those are the result of life, not the cause of life or the thing that continues to make you alive. So he wants them to continue to live by faith, not by works. Now, one, one other comment uh, talks about them receiving Christ Jesus the Lord. Some translations will say, receiving Christ Jesus as Lord. Um, I think that's less helpful. First of all, the word as is not there in the Greek. It just says receiving Christ Jesus the Lord. And so if we take this whole phrase to mean um, receiving and embracing the truth that Jesus is Lord, I think it makes sense as it is. And this idea that Jesus is Lord is one of the central affirmations of the gospel, right? Romans 10, Paul's saying this is, this is what you do to be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Or in Acts 2, Peter is drawing his sermon, preaching the gospel to all the Jews at Pentecost to a close, and he says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know that he has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So the idea that Jesus is Lord is a central proclamation of the gospel. Jesus is Lord, not Herod, not Caesar, not any other god or idol. Jesus is Lord and Jesus alone. I think writing it as receiving Christ as Lord can be misleading because there's a theological perspective that says you can receive Jesus as your Savior, but not as your Lord. And that if you want to receive Jesus as your Lord later, you can, but it's not required. Sort of a discipleship optional version of Christianity. That's not in the Bible. Partially because you don't get to pick 
how you receive Christ. I want to receive him as this, but not this. You either receive him as he is, or you don't receive him at all. Uh, so here's the other fun quote. Um, and this guy's even better because he's Dutch. I'm Dutch, so that's what, yeah, yes, that's right. When the believer so receives Christ and leans upon him, he not only considers him as a Savior, but also a Lord, for he receives a whole Christ and receives him just as he is. But he is no less Lord than a Savior. In fact, he cannot be Savior unless he is also a Lord. And so I, I don't want to spend a lot more time on that other than just the idea that I, I don't think this is, uh, particularly because of the way that some of the translations will have it, I don't think it's saying, I received Jesus uh, as my Lord here. I think it's just saying that the, to, to receive the gospel at all is to receive Jesus as he is and he is Lord and Savior. But if he's not Lord, he's not Savior. So... Uh, we could talk more about that, but that's more of just uh, uh, an aside. And so, in verse 7, he's going to go on and he's going to say that there are, there, there are these four things that modify the idea of walking him. And this is very, very similar to in, uh, uh, in chapter 1 in his prayer, where it says, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And he had four things that described what it meant to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And he does sort of the same thing here. He's got these four things. What does it look like to, to walk in him as you received him? And these aren't the, this is an exhaustive list, but it's a representative list. Well, you've, uh, one, you've been firmly rooted in him. That's a perfect tense. So it's something that's happened in the past that has continuing effects into the future. So you've been firmly rooted in him. And now and it's, now this switches to present tense for the other ones, now you're being built up in him and you're being established in your faith just as you were instructed, which um, this to me would mean this isn't just your faith like your belief. I think it's actually, in Greek, it's actually instructed in the faith and so uh, established in the faith. And so just as you were instructed might point to me that he, what, he's, what he's talking about is the content of the faith, not your belief in what's true. So just as you were instructed in the faith, that is what's true about Jesus, you're being established in it. So you were firmly rooted in it, now you're being built up, you're being established, and then just like in, in verses 10 to 12, it ends with this idea of gratitude. And this uh, Gratitude is a theme that he'll come back to a couple more times in the book, which is interesting. We thought about this in, in chapter 1. We'll come back to it again later, but a couple more times he talks about that our, our life as disciples are to be marked by, by gratitude. So this is the positive command. I want you to walk in him. I want you uh, to, to have been rooted and built up and established and overflowing with gratitude. This is what it looks like to pursue maturity in Christ, to walk in him by faith. 
That's the positive command. Now, the negative command in verse 8 is, now, if that's what's going to be true of you, now, make sure that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. So you can't walk in him by faith if you've been taken captive by these other things. Philosophy and empty deception, um, philosophy just means love of wisdom, and so it's just like a, a system of thought. Don't let no one take you captive by any other kind of system of thought or belief, which actually is just empty deception. And he gives two kind of um, examples of the kind of philosophies that they would be in danger of being taken captive by. Uh, the first is uh, philosophy and empty deception that's according to the tradition of men. Here he may have in mind uh, Jewish legalism. Uh, he's going to talk later about, um, uh, about not uh, being uh, led astray by people who say you need to celebrate certain days, the Sabbath or festivals, things like that, may have more of a, 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 of a flavor of this Jewish legalism they were facing. He's going to talk in a few minutes about some of the Jewish laws, things that they're no longer bound to. To see that no one takes you captive according to the tradition of men. This would actually match really well with the book of Galatians because it was, it was a mixed church of Jews and Gentiles, and some of the Jewish Christians were telling the Gentiles they needed to become Jews in order to be Christians. So in the same way, if the Colossian is a majority Gentile church, it's possible that some of the Jews there were telling them, well, you need to become Jews in order to, to really be saved. Say, so don't, don't listen to them. That's not, that's not true. So according to the tradition of men, or according to the elementary principles of the world. This one's a little bit harder. This idea of elementary principles could be uh, also translated elemental spirits. It's kind of an odd word. Um, the idea may be a reference to more pagan religions, uh, or it may be a reference to the uh, kind of demonic forces that are behind the pagan religions and idolatry. So remember in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul talks about how when people sacrifice to pagan gods, they're actually sacrificing to demons. So that behind all of these, these false religions is actually uh, forces of spiritual evil. And, and we see some of that theme throughout the book where it talks about that, you know, Christ... Uh, has, is actually lord over all of these rulers and authorities and powers. In a few minutes, it's going to, uh, in, in a few verses down, he's going to talk about how he's the head of all of those things, that he's, he's lord over them, he's triumphed over them. So he's actually going to kind of break this down in verse 8 in, in the rest of, the, of the, the section we're studying today, and he's going to show them why it makes no sense for you to be taken captive by the traditions of men, kind of the, the legalistic religious rules, particularly those of, of the Jews that they might have been facing, or according to the elementary principles of the world, 
That is, the, the spiritual forces at work behind pagan religions. He's going to say, these are, you, you can't allow yourself to be taken captive of these because Christ is supreme over these things and is more sufficient than these things and has actually done away with these things in such a way that for you to go back to them is for you to, to go backwards in, in your faith and actually say that Christ is not enough. He says, I don't want you to be taken captive according to the tradition of men or according to the elementary principles of the world, but according to Christ. And so it's actually, it's actually okay to be taken captive if you're taking, uh, taken captive according to Christ. So you want to be captivated by Christ, not by anything else. Why? Why is Christ and Christ alone sufficient for all we need? Why don't we need the wisdom of the traditions of men? Why don't we need these other spiritual forces? And in verses 9 to 15, he's going to break down why, why Christ is more sufficient, fully sufficient, over all of these other things. He's going to give five, uh, five big points. In verse 9, it's going to start with something about who Christ is. You'll notice in this section, there's a, there's a repetition of the, the phrase in him or with him over and over and over again. And, and so Paul, again, highlighting that it's because, because you're in Christ and this is who Christ is and what he's done, everything else is insufficient and only Christ is sufficient. So verse 9, don't let anybody take you captive. Why? For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. This is very similar to what he's already said in chapter 1, verse 19. You think about this, in particularly in, con in connection to somebody who might be tempting them to say, well, Jesus is great, but there's these other spirits that you need to, that you need to keep in mind as well. And Paul says, no, the, the fullness of deity. Now, in, in, in chapter 1, verse 19, he just said the fullness... Here he specifies what the fullness is, the fullness of deity. It is the fullness of God. God himself, his very nature, dwells in bodily form in Christ. So there's, there's no other deity other than the God that dwells in the person of Jesus. Um, there's one commentator who, who says it this way. So the word that's used here, deity, is distinguished from the word divinity. So divinity is, a, is an adjective, an attribute, something that you, you could call something other than God divine in some sense, potentially. But that's not what this word is. He's talking about uh, it's, it's a noun, the deity. He shows that Christians have no need to pay homage to lesser supernatural beings, or to put it more strongly, that all other lords become idols when contrasted with Christ. 
The man Jesus Christ, now exalted, is not one of a hierarchy of intermediary beings, angelic or in some other sense divine. He is uniquely God's presence and his very self. So again, this, is, this highlights what we already saw in chapter 1. Jesus is God. How much God is he? Well, it's harder to get all the, more God than all the fullness of deity. That seems, that seems pretty substantial, pretty all-encompassing. So, Paul said in the Colossians, don't let people take you captive away from this, saying that there's all these other spiritual forces you need to pay attention to. The spiritual being that created everything and is ruler and lord over everything dwells in the person of Christ, and if you're in him, you don't need anything else. So then he's able to say, in him, so not only in him does all the fullness of deity dwell, in him you have been made complete. Which actually literally says, in him you have been filled. So all the fullness dwells in Jesus, and because you're in Jesus, you have been filled. That doesn't mean that you are God, but it means that, like Paul says in Galatians 2, that Christ lives in you. You're in him, and Christ lives in you. If you've been made complete, if you've been filled in him, then there's no need to be filled by anything else or completed by anything else particularly any other kind of um, religious experience or, or, or supernatural uh, experience. Uh, because the one that you are in is the head of all rule and authority. That is, all these other spiritual powers and, and things like that. So you're thinking as they're interacting with their pagan neighbors and they're saying, oh, Jesus is great. We'll just add him to all of the other gods. And they're saying, no, Jesus is the Lord of all of these other things. I can't bow to any of these other things. I, I don't need anything else because in him I've been made complete. The same commentator, I just love this, this sentence. Christ brooks no rivals. His people need no one but Him. Because in Him, they've been filled. They've been made complete. So, in his, so why is Christ and Christ alone sufficient? Well, all the fullness of deity dwells in Him. In Him, His people have been made complete. In Him, you were also circumcised. And my first point under this is, wait, what? This is very odd for us. We don't think about things in these terms, right? And so, verse 9, verse 10, I can kind of latch on to more naturally. Yeah, okay. All of God is present in Jesus. Jesus is fully God. And in Him, because I'm in Him, I'm complete. And then it does not seem to me to be the natural uh, next step to say, oh, and also in him I was circumcised. That seems weird to me because I'm not a first century Jew. For Paul, this was a big deal. So remember, circumcision 
is the sign and seal of being in the covenant people of God, right? God gave this sign of circumcision to uh, Abraham and then to the Jews, say this, this is, uh, this is a, a visible, physical symbol that you are a part of my people. Now, what he highlights here, and this is sort of ironic because if, uh, if people were telling them that they needed to be circumcised in order to become a part of the people of God, and he's saying, well, in him you were circumcised already. But it's a, a circumcision made without hands. That is, we're not talking about a... Uh, a physical act of circumcision. We're talking about a spiritual act. And Paul's already talked about this in, in, in Romans 2. If you'll remember, he talks about the Jews that go around boasting about how they're God's people. And Paul says, the problem is they don't get it because the circumcision that doesn't matter is the one outwardly, it's the one inwardly. It's circumcision of the heart, which is the Old Testament terminology that the Jews would use to talk about being made new, being made alive, regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And talks about, in Deuteronomy, Paul says, the problem is that your hearts aren't circumcised. It wasn't Paul, it was Moses that said that, Paul wasn't alive. Moses said, the problem is your heart isn't circumcised. Which means you're not obeying God from the heart because your heart is still full of wickedness and sin. And so what you really need is to be made new. You need a new heart. And so what Paul, Paul is picking up on that, and he's saying, in Christ, you were circumcised, you were welcomed into the people of God, but it was a circumcision not of the body, but of the heart. It was made without hands. And it was done in the removal of the body of flesh. And this is... Uh, I won't go into details about the practice, but again, a kind of an ironic way of him saying it. It was the removal of the body of flesh, probably not talking about the actual body of flesh, probably talking about uh, when he uses the idea of the flesh, especially think about in Romans 6, the flesh is the old man, the old sinful nature that that's been cut away as you've been made new. You've been given a new heart by Christ. And so, how does this happen? How are you given a new heart and so welcomed into the people of God? He says, well, it's, it's by the circumcision of Christ. Which again, like, thanks, Paul, that doesn't help much. Well, some people think that it might refer in a kind of a cryptic way to the death of Christ being this, this cutting of the flesh. I, I don't think that's, that's the case. I think what he's talking about is baptism. Now, before you uh, fillet me, I'm not saying that I think Paul teaches that baptism is the thing that saves you or makes you alive or anything like that. 
So, so work with me here, because he talks about baptism in, in verse 12. So, uh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which baptism you were also raised up with him. Raised up with him through faith. Okay, so he's already saying that, no, what really matters is that it's happening through faith through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. That's how you are circumcised with him, buried with him, raised up with him. But he ties it really closely with baptism. And so this word by actually right here um, uh, is, is actually just the word in. So in the circumcision of Christ, which I think may just be a way if he's talking about in Christian circumcision, that is, in baptism. Okay. So we're buried with him in baptism. We're raised with him through the faith and the working of God. So it's not salvation by or through baptism. Um, but it would point me uh, to the idea that baptism was something that was tied to faith in the working of God rather than something that could be done by those who could not exercise faith in the working of God which is why we don't baptize infants. We baptize those who can have faith in the working of God. In the New Testament and in the early church, baptism and faith are tied very closely together. You see this especially in the book of Acts. When people respond to the gospel in the book of Acts, um, they are repeatedly responding basically in three ways. Believe, repent, and be baptized. What's fascinating is, um, as you look at all of those accounts, um, you'll have, you'll have the, the apostles say, uh, repent and be baptized, and then uh, Luke will report, well, then all the people received his word and were baptized. So it doesn't actually say they repented, it just says they received his, his word, and then they were baptized. And so there's, there's this... Uh, equating of repentance and faith together, that when the, when the apostles say to repent and people believe, that's a legitimate response. When the, people, when the apostles say uh, believe and uh, people, it says the people turned to the Lord, it is repented, it's the same thing. But the apostles never tell people just to be baptized and they never, uh, and baptism is never the only way that people respond in the book of Acts. It's always tied with repentance or faith. Baptism isn't always mentioned. Repentance and faith always are. So um, it's, it's not that uh, there's anything magical about baptism, but that baptism is like the first act of somebody who's been made alive. It's this first act of obedience. And so I think we often stray pretty far from what the Bible teaches on, in how far we delay baptism um, or how we, in some sense, make it kind of optional. It's like um, believe in, in Christ and then later, once you decide you want to, get baptized. And that wasn't the practice of the early church. And it was so closely tied together that Paul can say that in baptism... This is what's happening, not because of the baptism, but because that is the first act of faith. Now, I also think the fact that Paul ties 
baptism and circumcision together so closely here is important. So if baptism is Christian circumcision, the circumcision of Christ, well, just like circumcision was the sign, the symbol of entrance into the covenant people of God, but it didn't save, despite what the people at the time, the Jews at the time, may have thought it did. They began to trust more in their circumcision than they did in God. And Paul goes to great lengths in Romans 4 to demonstrate that circumcision doesn't save, faith does. And so he says, now remind me, when was Abraham circumcised? Was it before or after he was justified by God? Oh, it was before, because he was justified by faith. And then he only received circumcision years later as a sign of this thing that had happened, as a sign that because he was justified by faith, he was a part of this covenant people of God. And so I think Paul is saying baptism is the same thing for the Christian. Right? It's the analogous sign of entrance into this new covenant people of God. But it doesn't save. Faith does. I think if we tie those things together, then we can see that, that we don't have to be worried about uh, Paul's terminology here. That when we're Baptized, it is this representation, this visible representation of being buried with Christ and being raised with Christ through faith. And it's this, this public uh, entrance into the, the new covenant people of God. So in Him, we've also been welcomed in to the people of God. In verse 13 and 14, in him, or with him, uh, you've been made alive. So this is tied to the last one, right? That our hearts have been made new. And he did this. He made you alive when you were dead. So how dead is dead? There's not different degrees of being dead. There's not good dead people and bad dead people. Right? When you were dead. This is when I talk to people about writing their testimonies and some people think that their testimonies are not exciting enough because there's not these dramatic um, moments where God breaks through the clouds and said, like they, everybody wants the testimony like the Apostle Paul, right? He was blinded on the road and Jesus spoke to him like, oh, if only I had that testimony then, it would be really exciting. And I'm like, you were dead and God made you alive. That's everybody's testimony. That's remarkable. Only God makes dead people live. And so it doesn't matter if it happened when you were four next to your parents or if it happened when you were 24 and you were in a prison cell, you were dead and he made you alive. You were dead. How were you dead? Well, you were dead in your transgressions, that is, your breaking of God's laws, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, which probably is him talking to the Colossians as Gentiles and saying, so not only were you breaking God's laws, you were also separated from the people of God. And while you had no business being with God's people and you were breaking his laws, he made you alive 
with Christ. Death is the penalty for sin, which means if we're going to be made alive, our sins need to be dealt with. And so that's what he's going to go on now. Well, he made you alive. Well, how is that possible if we were dead in our transgressions and the uncircumcision of our flesh? He says, well, he's forgiven us all our transgressions. So we were dead in our transgressions, but he forgave us our transgressions. But how did he do that? Because he can't simply say, I forgive you. That would make him unjust. And so imagine if, if somebody in your family was the victim of a really terrible crime and that the law demanded justice to be done, and the person goes before the judge and the judge says, well, you seem like you're really sorry for it. I'm just going to forgive you. And you're sitting in the courtroom watching this. How are you responding? You'd be thinking, this is a terrible miscarriage of justice. Justice has not been done. Right? But this is how people respond when they hear about things like this with God. They say, well, why can't God just forgive everybody? There was a guy who, I um, can't remember his name, but he was a German guy who was on his deathbed, and uh, somebody asked him, do you think God will forgive you? This guy wasn't a believer, uh, and, and I think had been opposed to Christianity his whole life. He's like, well, do you think God will forgive you? And the guy said, of course he'll forgive me. That's his job. And there's not this idea that, no, we owe a debt to God because of our sin that must be paid. And if it's not paid, then, then justice is not done, then God is not just, and if God is not just, then he's not God. So God can't simply just forgive because sin has created this debt that we owe to God, but we can't pay that debt. And that puts us in a conundrum. So God does what we can't do. He, he cancels the certificate of debt. And the certificate of debt that is the, the, um, the paper that has the charges against us, that says what we owe, uh, it consists of the decrees against us. He's probably got in mind God's law. God's law is hostile to us, not because of anything bad about God's law, but because we can't obey it, just like the laws that we follow here in our country. They're not bad. Usually, sometimes they are. That's a different story. Um, they're only hostile to us if we break them. Right? Otherwise, they, they protect us. And so, what we owe to God is, is it's, it's, like, it's like Paul's imagining that, this, that the charges against us are written out in how we've breached the law and, and how we deserve God's punishment. We must pay this debt, but we can't pay it. So, God cancels it. But He doesn't just cancel it saying, um, you are... Uh, you owe me this, and so I'm just going to forgive it. Because anytime you have a debt like that, whether, uh, whether you pay it or somebody else pays it or the person to whom it's owed just absorbs it, somehow that, that gets paid. Now, if, if God just absorbs it, he's still losing something, right? He's not actually getting back the debt that, 
that he's owed. So God doesn't just cancel it by saying, I'm just going to forget about that. He actually finds a way for it to be paid. He's taken it out of the way, this debt that we owe. He's taken it out of the way, out of the way for us. And he did it by nailing it to the cross. So the certificate that Paul may have in mind here, he may be using this kind of imagery on purpose, uh, is something uh, called a titulus, which is the, the, um, the piece of paper that was nailed to the cross above a criminal that outlined their crimes so that everybody who passed by uh, could see this is what they're being crucified for. This is the debt that they owed that they are now paying for with their life. And the fact that Paul would use this imagery here is, is striking. So God deals with the, the debt that we owe because of our sin, not by simply overlooking it, but by nailing that certificate of debt to the cross. That is, the debt of sin that we owed to God was paid for by the one to whose cross that certificate of debt was nailed. The debt was ours, it was hostile to us, it was against us, and he nailed it to his cross. It's what we call substitution. Jesus instead of us. So anybody who's saying, well, you need to follow these laws in order to be, uh, in order to earn your favor with God, which is what the Colossians may have been dealing with in some part, the Colossians could say, uh, no, because the debt I owed was paid by Christ. So I don't need to submit to these things. And then lastly, uh, through him, or, uh, or again, the, the words in him, he has disarmed the rulers and authorities. So again, he's back to talking about these, these spiritual uh, beings. He's disarmed any other spiritual powers. He did it through Christ. Now, some, some translations um, say through it or through the cross. It, it probably refers to Christ. Now, it, just, it says in him, um, which could be a reference either to Christ or the cross because uh, in, in Greek, the word cross is a masculine word. Uh, and so the the term there is the same for both, but I think it probably refers uh, to Christ, but certainly has a reference to his triumph over them on the cross. That's the immediate thing before it. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He didn't destroy them, right? They still are operative. They still are able to do things and say things, and, and they're still at work in the world, but they're disarmed, how are they disarmed? Well, if you think about uh, Revelation 12, what we see about Satan there, Satan's called the accuser of the brethren. Uh, Satan's uh, primary work against believers, against all people, is to accuse them before God. Actually, the, the word Satan is not a proper name 
It's a title, it's a Hebrew word that means the adversary, which would have been a, a, a legal word that was used in courtrooms. I don't know if they had courtrooms, but in, in legal proceedings for the person who was bringing accusations against uh, a person. It was like the prosecutor in a sense. So he's called the Satan, the accuser, the adversary of God's people. And so he's, uh, Christ has disarmed uh, the rulers and the authorities, has disarmed these wicked spiritual powers. How? Well, I'd say because of the cross, because the debt that we owed has been nailed to the cross, Satan no longer has any legal ground on which to accuse believers. He can't say, look, this person deserves your condemnation because saying, no, that condemnation was already carried out. I, I can't punish uh, a sin that's already been punished. He disarmed them and then he made a public display of them. Having triumphed over them through him. The idea of the triumph is... In, in Rome, when the Roman army would win a, a battle or a war, they would come back to Rome and they would parade through the city and they would, uh, they would the, the army would march in and the general, and then with them would come all of these captives, every, everybody that they had disarmed and captured and bound through uh, their victory. And so, uh, I think the, the, the picture that Paul is painting is it's like Christ in his death and resurrection has won this great victory over these forces of spiritual wickedness, and he's not destroyed them, but he's, he's disarmed them and captured them and is leading them uh, in, a, in, a, in a triumph uh, where he's making a public spectacle of them. We can see that they've been bound, that they no longer have the power and authority that they once uh, had to accuse God's people. And so, Paul has said all of this, saying, this is the Christ that you are to walk in, walk by faith in. These are all of the things that are, that are true about him, and this is what makes him fully sufficient. He's dealt with your legal guilt. He has brought you into the people of God. All of the fullness of God dwells in him. You're complete in him. No spiritual power has authority over you because you're in him. So, because of all of those things, don't let anybody take you captive by telling you you need some of these other things because all of these things are true about you in Christ. And so in verses 16 to 23, he's going to then outline more specifically. Now, because of all of this, because Christ is fully sufficient for all of these things, here's what I want to make sure that you understand that you don't need to submit to. Here are the things that I want you to, to, make, uh, to make it very clear that you are not required to do any of these things, that these things are not going to add anything to your spirituality. He's going to talk more about pagan religions and, and Jewish regulations and things like that and say these things may appear to be wise and spiritual but they have no value we'll get to that the next time we're together which is in two weeks two weeks from today so we're off next week